Chapter 8, verse 1. Later David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Subdued them, not conquer them, not wipe them out. David took Methag, Ammon, from the Philistines, and he defeated the Moabites. He made them lie under the ground, on the ground, and then used a rope to measure them off. He put two-thirds of them to death and spared the other third. And the Moabites became David's subjects and brought tribute. Now that's not a very uncommon thing to do in the ancient world. You just It's a lot easier to measure them off with a rope than to count them. And then it's also a way of just randomly putting some to death and randomly keeping another. And the idea is that you never know what I'm going to do, so don't rebel. We just fell out of this amazing thing, and now we're like, oh, David. Why do you attack the Moabites? Didn't we just say they were not a... He's not wiping them out and conquering them. He is subjugating them. But at the same time, yes. Why is he killing them? God made it very clear to Moses. You go around Moab. They treat you like crap. They won't let you through their country. I don't care. You go around them. They're under my protection. Very good. And then he made it very clear in Deuteronomy. The only time you're ever allowed to attack any of these nations is when you're defending yourself. He's subjugating them. This is the machinery of state. This is the machinery of state. Then David seized from him, or sorry, David defeated the king Hadazar. Hadazar is the king all north, north Aram, like almost going off the map, like close to the Euphrates River. He defeated king Hadazar, son of Rahab of Zobah, when he came to establish his authority over the Euphrates River. David seized from him 1,700 chariots and 20,000 infantrymen. David cut the hamstrings of all but a hundred of the chariot horses. And the Armenians in the Damascus came to help King Hadazar of Zobah. And David killed 22,000 of the Armenians. Now Ar- Aram is on the list of destruction. But notice he's taking these chariots. He cuts the hamstring of the horses. Remember, that's not like crippling them in any kind of way. It basically is enabling them. It's preventing them from being used as war horses in a swift maneuvering kind of way. And then now they're only capable of actually being a workhorse. So it's it's literally like stripping all the bullets out of a gun. And now all it can be used for is a hammer to build houses. That's the idea. Not that you would want to use a gun for building houses. But if you were desperate enough, like Tom Hanks and Castaway, that's all he had. But notice that he didn't do this to all the horses. David finds all these loopholes. But I'm not amassing them and collecting them, I actually reduced the number. So there, it's okay, right? God said, don't collect. I didn't collect. I reduced my collection. I'm purging. David placed garrisons in the territory of the Arminians and Damascus, and the Arminians became David's subjects, brought tribute, and Yahweh protected David wherever he campaigned. And David took the golden shields that belonged to Hadazar, the servants, and brought them to Jerusalem, and from Teba and Barathai, and Hadazar's cities, King David took a great deal of bronze. He's beginning to amass money. He's starting to look like a king like all the other nations. When King Toy of Hamath heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadazar, he sent his own son Jerome to King David to extend his best wishes and to pronounce a blessing on him from his victory over Hadazar. 
for Toy had been at war with Hadazar, and he brought with him various items made of silver, gold, bronze. And King David dedicated these things to Yahweh, along with the dedicated silver and the gold that had taken from all the nations that subdued, including Aram, Moab, and the Ammonites, and the Philistines, and the Malak. And this also included some of the plunder taken from King Hadazar, son of Rahab Zob. Now he is dedicating some of this to the temple. But is that how God wants his tabernacle to be stocked? I don't know. So King Toy is all the way up in the north around the Euphrates River too. And he's probably realizing this guy is unstoppable. So let's be friends. <laughs> and so now what you're going to begin to see is people actually starting to make allies or treaties with David because they don't want to end up like Hadazar. And David became famous. And when he returned from defeating the Arminians in the village of Salt, he defeated, that's close to the Dead Sea, 18,000 in all. And he placed garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became David's subjects, and Yahweh protected David wherever he campaigned. And David reigned over all of Israel, and he guaranteed justice for all his people. So now he goes to Edom too, and he puts them under his power. Now, here's the thing. He guaranteed justice for all of his people. Job's son of Zariah was general and commander of the army, and Jehoshaphat, son of Ahalod, was secretary, and Zadok, son of Hatab, and Halemelech, son of Abathar, were priests. Seriah was scribe, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was supervised, and the Carathites and the Pelathites and David's sons were priests. David's taking new people on. Abiathar is left over from the house of Eli. And Abiathar is that house that's under the judgment of God. And they should not really be acting as priests right now, yet David's keeping them around. But that's going to be dealt later in 1 Kings chapter 2. We're introduced to a second priest by the name of Zadok. Now you need to, we'll talk about this more when we get to Kings, but we have two lines. Remember, Aaron had four sons. Two of them died in chapter 10 of Leviticus when they offered up strange fire. The only two that were left was Eleazar and Ithamar. Eleazar had a son by the name of Phineas. And Phineas was that guy who went into the, the tabernacle courtyard and killed the Moabite and the, the Israelite having sex with each other and killed them. And God was like, I am so happy of, for your zealousness. I'm going to make your line priest, high priest forever. That's Eleazar's descendant line. The other son was Ithamar. And Ithamar was also priest, but they weren't going to be made high priests forever. Only Phineas's line under Eleazar. So they, you're going down, and the priests stop being talked about in the book of Joshua. And they stop being, they're not really mentioned in Judges. We don't know who really is pre high priest during the book of Joshua and Judges. When we come to the book of Samuel, Eli is now the high priest. And he's from the line of Ithamar. So the question is, if God made that promise to Phineas, that they're, and not Ithamar's line, why is Ithamar's descendants priests? But then Eli's house is so corrupt and evil that God's going to wipe them out. Zadok is in the line of Eleazar and Phineas. And so now what we have is we have those two lines of Aaron's sons. And one has been promised, Eleazar, now Zadok, that he would be priest, high priest forever. And the other one, Ithamar or Abiathar, through his line, has not only not gotten the promise, but also was under the judgment of God through the house of Eli what you see now is two lines here and it just reads like a bunch of names to you but we have a, a conflict with the promise of God and the judgment because the promise is being delayed and the judgment's also being delayed 
But remember, this is not our timing. This is God's timing. And God can delay judgments. Remember, he delayed Saul's death for a long time because he wanted Israel to have a king like all the other nations. For whatever reason, he's delaying the judgment on Eli's house. Some of them already died young, but the idea of them being completely removed from the priesthood has not happened. This is God's timing. And we are like, as Americans, we want prediction fulfillment. Make it happen. You said it would happen, it hasn't. Like, but that's not how prophecy always works. And, and God's got his own timing. And his ways are not our ways. But it will happen in 1 Kings chapter 2. In this in section or chapter 8, it doesn't say David asked the Lord, should I do these things? Are we assuming that happened? It's hard to know. The narrator gets very intentional on removing God's name at certain times in David's life. And he's very intentional on putting God's name in at certain times as well. I mean, when we get to chapter 10, God's not really going to be mentioned by David except for a couple times all the way up to chapter 20. So, yeah, I, I think we can assume he's not really seeking God out in these things. But God's still blessing. Yes. Just like we don't always seek God out in everything, and yet he still blesses us. And that's the other thing, like, what God is like that? I mean, like Timothy says, God is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him. And, and, and sometimes God knows that you need a good kick in the butt to get your life back on track. And sometimes God knows you need just grace and faithfulness even when you don't deserve it to wake you up. Different things work for different people at different times in their lives. And God made promises too. That's the other thing. Benaiah is a general. He is a young general. And by young, I mean just younger than Joab. And he is put into power. Zadok and, Zadok and Benaiah come into power at the time that David is now in Jerusalem. So there's an old guard, and there's a new guard, so to speak. And that's going to create incredible tension in chapter 1 of 1 Kings. You're going to see this divide between those who were with David pre-Jerusalem and those who were David post-Jerusalem. And that's exactly where the dividing line is going to happen and 1 Kings chapter 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then David asks, Is anyone still left from the family of Saul, so that I may extend my kindness to him for the sake of Jonathan? So he made a promise to Jonathan, I would not wipe out your house. I would bless him. You're like, yeah, David, but you've been a king for a while. <laughs> it could it be that now that God has just made an incredible covenant with him, it's got him thinking about covenants, and now he's like, oh, maybe I need to honor that covenant with Jonathan and Saul. So we've already learned about Mephibosheth earlier. And now he comes into the scene. Now there was a servant from Saul's house named Ziba. So he was summoned to David. The king asked him, are you Ziba? And he replied, at your service. And the king asked, is there not someone left from Saul's family that I may extend God's kindness to him? That kindness is the same word as chesed. It's the same word that God used, I will not remove my chesed from you. And David's like, I want to show chesed to Saul's family, Jonathan's family. Ziba said to the king, one of Jonathan's sons is left. Both of his feet are crippled. And the king asked him, where is he? And Ziba told the king, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabir. This is the only son left Saul, like son through sons. Now, Saul has children through his daughters, but they don't remember that the females don't carry the name. So this is the literal last, because before it was the narrator introduced you to Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth, 
and basically said, what is David going to do with these two guys? Well, now we learn that David didn't deal with Ishbosheth, Baanah, and Rechab did. And David dealt with them. So now, what are we going to do with Mephibosheth, the last remaining heir of the throne? Remember, in, a, in everybody else's mind in the ancient world, that's a huge threat, and he must be eliminated. And yes, there's no way that a nation would put their trust in a cripple, and I'm not, that's not my view. <laughs> but still, do you really take that risk? So King David had him brought from the house of Machir, son of Emil and Lo Debir. And when Mephibosheth and Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed low with his face toward the ground. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he replied, Yes, at your service. And David said, What is going through his mind right now? What in the world? Like, this guy has never talked to me ever. And all of a sudden I'm being brought in. I'm the last heir of Saul. David said, Don't be afraid. That says there is fear in his face. Because I will certainly extend chesed to you for the sake of Jonathan, your father. Now that's interesting because God is going to bless the sons of David for the sake of David all throughout Kings. It'll say over and over again that this king was not a righteous king and he did evil in the eyes of God. And when every other king in the north is getting wiped out because of their sins, God does not wipe out the sins of David because God remembered his promise to David. And so David's picking up on that and says, I'm blessing you because of your father. You will be a regular guest at my table. Now remember, if he's eating at his table, that means covenant, family. You're my son. I'm going to treat you as my son, my family. We have a covenant. Then Mephibosheth bowed and said, Of what importance am I your servant that you shall regard for a dead dog like me? Now, he uses that term because that's how probably everybody treats them. Cripples are not really respected American-wise, I mean, across the board in America, let alone the ancient world, when you're being crippled as the, the direct result of gods and wrath and judgment. And even if you don't believe there's gods punishing you, even the Pharisees are like, why is this guy blind? Because his dad sin or he sin? So they even view God that way a lot of times. So he's been probably been told his entire life he is a dog, treated like a dog. And David's not treating him that way. Probably because David knows he should be treated like a dog by Yahweh. And he hasn't been treated that way. It's, it's very interesting the narrator put this immediately after that event. And the king summoned Ziba, Saul's attendant, and said to him, Everything that belonged to Saul and to his entire house I hereby give to your master's grandson. You will cultivate the land for him, and you and your sons and your servants, and you will bring its produce, and it will be food for your master's grandson to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will be a regular guest at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Now why is that comment there? When Saul died, and all the other sons died, the land reverted to Ziba. The only son that was left for a little bit with Ishbosheth, but he got dealt with, and then now Mephibosheth. But I can easily take the land from Mephibosheth because I'm the loyal servant of Saul that has worked this land for years and took care of Saul's family, probably even raised a few of his kids, and the only one that's left is a crippled who's cursed by the gods anyways, and who's going to contest me on that one? And now all of a sudden David says, no, he's the rightful heir. 
He's the rightful heir, according to God. God assigned certain lands to certain people, and it was to stay there forever. And then it mentions that Ziba had all these sons and servants. Their future is now just put in jeopardy. He thought he had all this. In fact, the fact that a servant has that many sons means that he has lots of wives, which means he's been acting like the descendant of Saul and been building up a little <laughs> mini empire. And now David comes in and takes away all of his income. Well, maybe not all of it, but a vast majority of it. And it lets you know that because Ziba's coming back. And he's going to find a way to get his land back. Even though it's not technically his land. Now here's the thing. This is a direct contrast because later when we get to Ahab, and starting in chapter 17 of Second or 1 Kings, Ahab is going to intentionally take a land from somebody. David is seen as the guy who's protecting the inheritance of other people, even a cripple. And yet Ahab and Jezebel can conspire against somebody to kill them and murder them and cheat everybody out of the land because he wants a vegetable garden. And there's a huge contrast between those two kinds of kings. Because what Ahab's doing is he's taking land from a person that he has no right to take because it basically means he's stealing from God. He took from what God gave. And remember, the only person, the three most important things in creation are Yahweh, the land, and humans. And Yahweh put the human in the land after he took the human out of the, or out of the dirt. And then he placed them in the land. And if God put you in the land, he can take you out of the land. And if he made the land, he can give the land to whoever he wants. And when Ahab does that, in the language of Genesis 1 and 2, Ahab is making himself God. Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do everything that my lord, the king, has instructed his servant to do. So Mephibosheth was a regular guest at David's table, just as though he were one of the king's sons. Now if Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants, and Mephibosheth was living in Jerusalem, for he was a regular guest at the king's table, but both of his feet were crippled. Notice how many times it repeats this. What's the point? Mephibosheth literally has nothing he can contribute to David in an ancient way of thinking. Now, I don't, I don't mean that. <laughs> but he'll never be able to be a warrior. He can't work the lands for you. He can't go out and even collect taxes. He can't do a census for you. He can't work around the household. He can't help prepare the meals. He's, the idea is literally, in the ancient way of thinking, he is literally just sitting there eating off of David's table, contributing nothing to the empire. And yet David is true to his covenant. And that's huge. And, and whether that, that, that is not accurate, that somebody who's crippled has nothing to contribute, but that's the way they think. And if that's the way that you think, and yet you continue to bless them like that and take care of them, that says something about your generosity and that you're honoring your covenants. And, and notice, like, this is what makes David so complex. Because in one moment you're reading these things, and you're like, my goodness, that is so jacked up. And the next thing you're like, wow, that's amazing. And you just keep going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, scumbag, great guy, scumbag, great guy, scumbag. And, and what the narrator's doing is he's, he's holding the mirror up to you. It's the same way. Like, you, you know it. In one moment, you're like, how could I do this and then do that? 
how in the world did my kids like act in the I mean Cassidy in one moment is like just out of her own heart she is one of the most generous girls out of our family and she'll just really go up to people and bring gifts to them and, she, and all the women's daughters are like selfishly mine 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 and Cassidy's just like break and hands it to you and the very next second she's like smacking her sisters and screaming at them and and you're just like, how is this girl with one of the most compassionate hearts unleash that crazy wrath so quickly? <laughs> the difference between her and us is that we're just a little bit better and civilized at hiding it, <laughs> right? The difference between an adult and a little kid is we have found ways of justifying it, hiding it. But in our minds and hearts, we want to do the same thing. I don't want to share this with you. But that's, that's what, this is why, the, even though David's been seriously misinterpreted over the years, this is why he's such a powerful story. Because the, in, in all these books, most of these people are really screwed up or really good. There's a few cases, like the patriarchs, are, um, they're very mixed bag, but they're very episodic. And by the time you get to serial narrative where you can begin to relate to it, Joseph is pretty great. This is one of the very few very serial narrative, a very good flowing story that we can connect to in a story sense that this guy is a scumbag and a great guy at the same time. He's relatable. And it becomes a very powerful message of what God's love really is. Of how one moment God, yes, when you read the Proverbs and wisdom literature, it is like God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And if you walk in the darkness and say you walk in the light, you're a liar. And you're like, oh, I'm so screwed. <laughs> the way of the righteous is done, and the way of the wicked is done. And you're like, I don't feel like I fit into either one of those. And there's a certain sense where God says, this is my righteous standard. And if you fall short, you're screwed. Because only the righteous get into the kingdom of God. But then at the same time, there's this incredible love of God that just shows grace and mercy and compassion over and over and over again. And that same light line that says, God is light and in him there is no darkness. And if you say you walk in the light and you're in the dark, you're a liar. And it says, and thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says, Christians do not sin. You're like, what? But if we do, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And that's the complexity of Yahweh. He Do not walk away from the story thinking behavior doesn't matter. But do not walk away from the Bible thinking too that God is just ready to smash you for every bad behavior you've ever done. And that's the tension with Yahweh. He does have a standard. And he wants you to meet it. But at the same time, he knows that you're a scumbag and you're screwed up. And he knows that you need to be redeemed. Because what kind of sick, twisted God would die on the cross for your sins knowing that every sin you've ever committed, and then he rejects you the moment you sin? He's died on the cross and he knows all of your lives and all your futures before you've ever been born. And he says, I dying for them, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And then you finally come into history and commit that sin and God's like... <laughs> That's a jacked up God. And that, that's the complexity of him. He is going to hold David accountable for his bad behavior. All oh, his coming. Chapters 13 through 20. <laughs> but at the same time, he is not going to reject and abandon and stop loving and being merciful 
to David. And that's the tension we need to hold. We need to understand we are saved by grace. But Jesus also said, you're my friend if you obey me. And that's a difficult tension to hold in our hearts and our minds. Because we tend to go to one extreme or the other. It is both justification and sanctification. Which ultimately leads to glorification. And that's what the story of David is trying to show. Is that God is a God unlike any other God. And that's why it's so hard to maintain that tension. Because his ways are not our ways. The narrators clearly define what it means to be a man after God's own heart. And how God is willing to show mercy and grace and mercy and grace. But when we get into chapter 10, 11, and 12, and 13, 14, 15, and 16, you're going to see, yet at the same time, David, I will tolerate a lot of that in a loving covenantal way, in a mercy and grace way, but I will not tolerate it in a no consequence way. There are consequences for your actions. There may be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there are consequences. And that's what we must remember. 